0: caregivers have you ever felt like nothing is going right well cheer up and welcome to Dave the caregivers caregiver radio program where you'll learn how to avoid that dreaded thing called caregiver burnout and how to survive the grieving process join Dave and his guests now as they share practice tips and tools that you can start using immediately to help get you through this day now here's your caregiver host Dave Nassani
1: Broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, a big L.A.
0: welcome to all our listeners out there. Caregivers, have you ever felt like nothing is going right? Well, cheer up and welcome to Dave, the Caregivers Caregiver Radio Program where you'll learn how to avoid that dreaded thing called caregiver burnout and how to survive the grieving process. Join Dave and his guests now as they share practice tips and tools that you can start using immediately to help get you through this day. Now, here's your caregiver host, Dave Nassani.
1: From Los Angeles in New York City, a big L.A. and big Apple, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. At CaregiverDave.com along with my lovely co-host Adrian Gruberg at the Caregiverspace.org. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 20 global audio and video platforms, platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, MixCloud, Listen Notes, Blueberry, Player FM, Podcast.com, VIP, Internet Radio, TuneIn.com, Facebook Live, HealthyLife.net and caregiverdave.com, and we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, and one of the top six best podcasts by caring.com, as well as number three podcast out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot, and we do have an exciting show planned for you today.
2: Yes, that's we've got a great show planned.
1: We anyway, you saw her on the Today Show and on CNN, and for her first book, What to Ask the Doc? Registered Nurse, MSCRNA, Margaret Fitzpatrick, not sure I know what all those letters mean, but with her (laughs) new book, Getting the Best Care, Helping Families Navigate the Healthcare System for Over 20 Years. But before we get started, I want to take this moment to thank my last week's guest, Jill Wortman, author of If You Ever Need Anything, Really, and Chuck Wortman, caregiver and caregiver expert and advocate, and those two found each other late in life, and now they're Married caregivers to each other (laughs) and to the world, and uh, just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of our other 20 global networks that I mentioned earlier. All right, enough of that. Welcome to the show, Margaret. I'm so excited to have you on. So sorry for the mix-up that pushed your show back three months. have played in july and now here we are in uh, october but better late absolutely. than never as they say you are very busy aren't you
3: absolutely i think we all are in this uh, business <laughs> some <laughs> more than others yeah but.
1: So, so listen i like to ask my guests why don't you take a minute or two and introduce yourself i like to uh, ask them just who is margaret fitzpatrick and why was she put on this earth
3: well, uh, Margaret Fitzpatrick has uh, been a critical care nurse and nurse anesthetist for over 20 years. Um, I come from a large family. I am the 16th of 16 siblings.
1: Wait a minute. Whoa! From one mother?
3: <laughs> from one mother and one father.
1: Where did you come from? What city? What state?
3: Outside of Chicago. Wow. Really? Yeah, hmm. yeah. Well, congratulations! Uh, people, wow,
1: <laughs> you won't be alone in your old age.
3: <laughs> well, I'm the, listen, I'm the youngest, and so I have siblings who are more than twenty years older than I am. Right. And so, in addition to being a caregiver for both of my parents as they aged into their nineties, I've also taken on that role in various aspects for. Different siblings as they've encountered MS and heart disease and other problems
1: Um, Wow, I bet you have Uh, I think your mother needs to be in the Guinness World Book of Records I'm not sure what the record is of how many births uh, that uh, a mother could have But it's got to be way up there
3: Well, yeah, I actually, my parents knew a family of 21 when uh-huh. we were growing up so. <laughs> There's always so. with someone
1: who wants To one-up you, you know
3: <laughs> Yeah, and I'm also I'm, I'm married to my husband Jim, and uh, he Comes from a family of eight So mm-hmm. I told him that that was a That was a nice-sized family <laughs>
1: Decent, yeah Decent, eight is enough
3: And together <laughs> we have four Four children, all of whom are Grown And um, so it's a one of the inspirations for me uh, in writing the book and in doing the things I do, as well as, um, in addition to caring for patients in the hospital, was my mother. And she actually lived to be 99 years old. We were very wow. lucky. And she lived with us the last four or five years of her life. So that really shaped a lot of how I view things.
1: mm. My grandmother also lived to be 99, God bless her. She would have kept going, but the hospital gave her too many water pills and she had congestive heart Ooh. failure.
3: Mm-hmm. But that's another yeah. story. Yeah. So, well, uh, it's interesting because one of my mother's uh, values and priorities was to stay away from the hospital as much as possible <laughs> so that they have helped her to live a long time.
1: Yes, I thoroughly agree. Um, how many... Grandchildren? Did your siblings have? Who who wins the prize on that one?
3: My oldest sister had five, um, oh. but really half of us didn't have any children. So really? my parents felt kind of cheated in the grandchildren <laughs> department because they ended up with only twenty three, and they had they had friends who only had five or six children who ended up with thirty five and forty grandchildren. Oh so. Gosh. They got kind of cheated. (laughs)
1: That's amazing. So uh, what did you talk about when you were on the Today Show? I'm a little envious (laughs) because I'm trying to get on the Today Show, but I will one day.
3: Yeah, it was a great experience. Um, So for that book, I had a co-author, Linda Burke, and she is a critical care nurse. Um, We met while working in the surgical intensive care unit at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And we noticed that families who came into the ICU being very traumatized that their loved one is ill or injured, um, generally asked very vague questions of the healthcare providers like, how is my husband doing today? Instead, and we noticed that those people didn't really get a good understanding of what was going on. They didn't get good information. So our view was if you have the right questions to ask, you're going mm-hmm. to get the answers that you need, and it's going to help you make good choices. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. is what we talked about our book, which was about questions to ask. That's really needed. That was a great idea. Oh,
1: yeah. I want to know where yeah. you got all this <laughs> experience uh, of becoming an advocate and an expert in, in you know, what to know or say uh, in hospitals to stay alive.
3: Well, I, my, my original degree was in philosophy and religious studies. And oh. as one of my brothers said, that that was good training to be a bartender.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> True. But I was always, you know, I always was a caregiver. Um, I, I always was, it seemed to be the person that people turn to in times of crisis. And yeah. um, I had an opportunity to go back to school for my nursing degree and so that is what led me to be a critical care nurse and uh, trauma nurse specialist. And then after the kids were in high school and starting college, I went back for my master's in anesthesia, which is what that CRNA is. It's a um, nurse anesthetist. So, so that gave me a lot of background and uh, advanced uh, education about healthcare and how to mm-hmm. help people.
1: Well, you are an overachiever, aren't you?
3: <laughs> well, I'm an overdoer. I don't know if I'm an overachiever. Yet. I can tell by the bulletin
1: board behind you how you file. You have a filing system. She's a Post-it girl. <laughs> yeah. So when you look yes. at that, you know exactly the flow and the organization of all those things that kind of looks like Greek to us, right?
3: Right, yeah. I, I um, saw a great set of videos about how to... Organize yourself when you're writing and promoting a book, and it was Dave Chilton, and he recommended the the, the huge bulletin board. Yeah, <laughs> so.
1: absolutely. That way you can move yes. stuff around. That chapter belongs down here. Yeah. And so on. Well, that's awesome. So you are you're not fond of hospitals, or or am I not being accurate in that statement?
3: Well, um, I, I am fond of hospitals, and I respect people <laughs> who, who work in hospitals and admire a great many people that I work with. Um, I, that's what I've dedicated my life for the past almost 25 years to. But I think, like with anything, we have to know what we're getting into, and we can't just give ourselves over when we cross the threshold and say whatever you think <coughs> is best. You wouldn't do that with your, you know, your contractor in your house, let alone with, you know, with your elderly grandma. So right. we need to really take responsibility. And the problem is people don't know what they don't know. And right. they turn towards the experts, the physicians to ask. And too often in healthcare, we're just going on the standard treatment. Mm-hmm. rather than looking at the individual person and asking what's appropriate for this person at this time in his life right. with these medical problems.
1: Yeah, and that could have really helped me and my situation and my wife because back in 96, I don't think we had smartphones or the Internet. I remember having this brick, you know, that, uh, <laughs> yes. that I was so proud that I could finally have a phone in my car like all the rich people. But right. um you know, when she had a stroke, I called the paramedics, and the first bad question that I answered incorrectly was, where do you want us to take her? You know, there was a, a huge medical center about 15 minutes from our house, and there was a small rinky-dink private hospital about seven minutes from our house. So I said, I don't know. Where would you take your wife if she was having a stroke? First mistake. Well, they took her to the closest place, which... You know, I guess they have to unless you direct them not to. And By so laws, is, yeah. Yeah, that was my first mistake, not sending my wife to the right hospital, the larger hospital. Always, if you have minutes and not seconds, you know, go for the larger facility. because. And I also didn't know, I mean, today if that would happen – while the ambulance was coming, I'd be Googling, you know, symptoms of a stroke. Of and then and then I would be an expert in like three minutes to say, okay, well, did you do this? <laughs> you know, we have a three-hour window. Did you know that? You know, we've got to hurry up and get a CAT scan and this and that. But I was clueless. So we get to right. this hospital, and it's uh, Labor Day weekend, and the place is like deserted. And finally, they take her in for an X-ray. And I didn't know that she should be having a CAT scan, not an X-ray, or an MRI, rather. And so they come back with this blurry image of a brain and a little fuzzy dot, and they says, well, um, this is after the fact. They didn't even involve me in the decision-making process, which they should have. I should have insisted, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And it turns out they didn't give her that clot-busting drug, which uh, you know would uh, take care of the, the blood clot in the three-hour window. She'd be fine. But instead, they says, well, that, that could be seepage or leakage. We better not give that to her. I find out later. And then, you know, the rest is history. Lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side after they had sent her to the other hospital medical center. And I had spoken to the real neurologist instead of the guy who thought he was a neurologist. So, yeah, I wish, I wish I'd wish have known. And let that be a lesson to everybody out there. This woman knows what she's talking about. You don't want to learn from your own mistakes. Uh Read her book now. This is called "Getting the Best Care." Right now, you've got a different cover, um, and so and I tell think us. Dave,
3: if I can tell you um, yeah. some another resource that's available for people that I strongly recommend people access prior to having that emergency is uh, hospital safety ratings, mm. and the Leap the Leapfrog Group um, does. Extensive uh, research into most of the hospitals in the United States, and they give them A through F ratings. And wow. you want you want to know because that large hospital, even though it may be a big teaching hospital, uh-huh. may have a C rating, and a smaller hospital may have an A rating. So Good it's point. something you want to know before you go.
1: Never judge a book by its cover, huh? <laughs>
3: yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So. um, But it's
3: hard when you're traumatized in the moment. You know, you really shouldn't have to be the person that has all the answers. Mm -hmm. But it's good if you can do a little research ahead of time. And that Leapfrog Group uh, website is really great. It's healthcare safety. Yeah.
1: I love these sayings that you have uh, in your book. Here's one Uh, The worst place for an aging loved one may be the hospital. Explain that.
3: Right. I see this every day. You know, one of my responsibilities as a nurse anesthetist is to respond to the emergency codes in the hospital, like what you see on TV when they call a code blue. Um, and so I am one of the people who is, is on the code team, and I respond, my duty is to manage the airway. And frequently I am the senior healthcare provider in the room, so I'm a resource for everybody else and more often than not these codes are called for people over the age of 70 who have multiple medical problems mm. and the statistics show that if you're over 70 with multiple medical problems your likelihood of surviving a code in the hospital is about 2 to 3%. Wow.
1: Wow. Why is that?
3: Yeah. And that it's just because time and, and health care issues have taken too much of a toll for us to be able to bring you back to life, basically. And in that, and it might be as high as 5%. It depends on where you live in the country. But out of that 2 to 5% that we consider success, there's a certain percentage that are sent to long-term care who are ventilator? Yeah. You know, they're dependent on a breathing machine. They're dependent on a feeding tube. Um, they'll never live independently or function the way that they did before.
1: Yes. So, so I have I have an advanced directive that says no feeding tube, no um, ventilator, etc. Uh, because I don't want to end up like that. Yeah. But um, I was going to ask you something. I forgot what I was going to ask you. <laughs>
3: Well, I can Oh, are you different. suggesting?
1: I, I remember what it is. Are you suggesting yes. that that patient would be safer at home if they were having a code blue?
3: Well, safer at home? I mean, if you have the code at home, you're you're going to die it likely if you have the code in the hospital and you're, you know, 80 years old, you ha- I mean, literally I have put breathing tubes in people who are 80 years old, advanced dementia, lung cancer, kidney disease, this person has literally no chance of surviving this. Don't people like definitely... this have
1: an advanced directive, though?
3: Um, only a third of us have advanced directives. Wow. And out of that number, we may not know about the advanced directive. And that's what I was going to say, Dave, when you said that you have an advanced directive. I like to tell people that paper is the least important part of the whole thing. The most important part is the conversation that you have with your loved one who's going to be in charge of things if you're in emergency, with your physician. Those are the people that need to know because a paper in your desk drawer doesn't do anybody in <laughs> any good. It doesn't do it. Yeah. Well, with yeah. the Internet, I, I just know that when,
2: when I've checked into uh, hospitals as, as a single person without you know, without somebody accompanying me, all of my wishes are in the hospital's computer.
3: All of the directives. Uh, Well, That's that's a good idea. That's something you need to verify every single time that you go because very often people think it's there and it's not there. But even if it is there, the moment that a code is called, very frequently, it's the change of shift. That shift mm. isn't aware that Adrian has this set of information. Right. So it, it's something that needs to be known by, by everyone. And I suggest even people who are single to have a healthcare care buddy um, <laughs> that, that is kind of your pal that will take care of you in the hospital because even if you're in full control of your faculties, You're not going to be, you know You you really need another person's Eyes and ears to take To keep track of things for you
1: Yeah Uh, Sometimes
3: uh, Should people have some sort of A record, let's say
2: on their cell phone Or Like a place
3: Well you can, but honestly Adrian, no one's going to look there I mean, the reality is The reality is it takes conversations It takes Um Letting people know just upfront what your wishes are, and that doesn't. Too often, people think, "Well, I don't want people to try. I don't want people to give up on me." Mm-hmm. And that's not what it's about. It's about getting the appropriate care at the appropriate time in your life, yes. and and letting people know. What your general overall goals are. So when I say that the hospital is the most dangerous place for an older person, I mean that over the age of 65, even if we don't have any dementia or anything, we're at a tremendous risk for delirium in the hospital. And it can cause confusion and um, really interrupt your ability to advocate for yourself. Mm. So in addition to being vulnerable to infections and medical errors and sure. over-treatment, you know, so I say go the hospital unless you're <laughs> going to have a possibility of a big payoff. You know, if it's just going to, we're going to go in to see, I, I say no, because mm-hmm. you're, you're too vulnerable to too many problems.
1: Yeah. Well, is we're going to take a break, so don't go away. We'll be right back we are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey we are a place to connect with other caregivers but more importantly a place to get practical actionable help there are lots of ways for you to get support first of all you can download our welcome pack this will get you started on your thrive journey next you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private facebook groups you can also get live online support by attending one of our live weekly connect webinars you can get practical actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast you can hear and read other stories about other caregivers experiences plus add your own in our weekly share your story forum posted every tuesday in the facebook group you can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver you can get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. And we're back on The Caregiver Dave Show. I'm Dave Nostani, and we're with... Adrian Gruberg, my co-host, and Margaret Fitzpatrick, and we're talking about getting the best care. And so before we left, I wanted to ask you about some other things that you said in your book, the most important situation that your doctor cannot handle, an eye-opening look into how physicians are not prepared to help you with your health care as you age. Now, that's a scary thing. Tell us about that.
3: Well, there's just not enough time, right? I mean, I have a very good physician. She's very sensitive and intelligent, and I was talking to her about this um, when, when she got the book, and she said that she gives all of her patients who are over the age of 65 a folder, and in that folder is instructions about making a healthcare power of attorney, about making your wishes known shouldn't, you know, any of us could have an accident, you know, let alone if you're diagnosed with a serious illness. And she said out of all the people she has given that to, which is hundreds of people, she has had two people return the packet to her (laughs) with their advance directive. So she's doing that because she doesn't have the time to sit with people, which is really what you need. You need that personal connection. And not only do most physicians who I have worked with, they're not good at those conversations. They, it, they find it very difficult to have those conversations, but they also don't have the time. It's it just, you have 15 minutes on a good day if you're going to have um, a visit to your doctor. And during that time, there's just too much to cover um, so we need to do it ourselves We can't rely on the healthcare system to do it We have to do it one family at a time With making our wishes known With talking about it With really giving the gift to the people that we love So that when there's an emergency They're not making decisions out of grief and fear They're making decisions out of respect for what you want
1: Wow, yeah. that makes sense Yeah um. You know, you talk about an eye-opening look into how physicians are not prepared to help you. Um, Oh, no, I just talked about that. Let me edit that out. Uh, You have set your financial goals. Now it's time to set your health care goals. Are you going to be a burden to your children? And, you know, I talk about that all the time with my kids because I don't want to be a burden to my children. And Adrian and I both see uh, what some people are like, even at our age, and they're not doing very well, so, you know, we're, we're looking pretty good <laughs> compared. And so what, uh, what I tell them is, listen, if I ever get to be like, you know, my mother <laughs> or like my mother-in-law, I'll show you where the guns are, make it look like an accident, and, oh. you know, that's tongue-in-cheek. But uh, part of me is serious, but part of me is not serious. And I don't want to be a burden to my kids, and I tell these caregivers all the time who are, just killing themselves over their loved one. And I says, listen, if they were in the right mind, they would not let you do this. They do not want to be a burden to you. Just like, would you want your children doing what you're doing to them? No, no. Well, you know, they don't get it. What advice Well, and you that's,
3: got? I, I kind of view that burden as a different sense than what people generally hear it as. My My take on that is it's a burden if I don't know what you want. How can I help you if we haven't talked about what your values are around this time in your life? That's a real burden. But like with my mother, I didn't feel burdened because I knew she had a small stroke when she lived with us. I mean, nothing compared to what um, your wife endured, Dave, but she she was no longer able to walk. But I also knew she didn't want to go to the hospital, and I knew the hospital wasn't going to benefit her at the age of 98 when she had a stroke. The only thing they would do is make her confused mm -hmm. and give her an infection and, you know, drive her insane. So I didn't feel worried about that decision. You know, that wasn't a burden to me. I knew, okay, we've already talked about it. We had talked about it for 15 years, what she wanted and didn't want. So that was less of a burden to me, and that's what I mean when – when I say, do you want to be a burden? If you don't want to be a burden, then give them the gift of knowing what you want.
1: So you've got like a little list of things to do to make sure that you're not a burden to your kids?
3: Mm -hmm. So one is, I I can't tell you, first of all, have the conversation, but you can go on this website called prepareforyourcare.org. And it is a fantastic website that, if you go through the steps, it has little videos and a lot of different resources. But at the end, you will have a legal health care power of attorney in every state of the country. Hmm. And it's in multiple different languages. If you think of a language, they have it translated into that. And it was the palliative care physicians at the University of San Francisco Medical Center that put it together. And it's the best I've seen. It's called prepareforyourcare.org. And you can walk through the steps, print out a healthcare power of attorney, and use that to help start a conversation. Because again, the conversation is the most valuable part of it. Is to let people know. So that's that's a step that's very important to do. That. Do you want to hear yeah. the other ones?
1: <laughs> yes, I do.
3: No, well, I just I just want to say that.
2: Um, Having the conversation long before it's needed is yes. and, and doesn't feel threatening. Um, yes. is very important. Uh,
3: is,
2: yeah, just wanted to say that.
3: <laughs> right, because when everyone's feeling well and doing great, you know, if your dad is golfing every day, it doesn't feel so threatening to say hey I just you know my friend's father just had a stroke or you know whatever it is and I wondered what is it that you want who do you want to make the decisions for you then everyone feels kind of um, free to have the conversation mm-hmm. but when you get when you have a terrible diagnosis it might feel more burdensome to broach mm-hmm. those subjects yeah okay. absolutely I also strongly recommend people get their um, financial, Things in order have a will and a trust. People Mm -hmm. think if they have a will that they've done everything they need to do. But I know from experience a will causes a lot of problems if you don't have a trust set up. And a trust is what's going to prevent all of your property from going into probate court, which can take, I am now in a situation 18 months after someone who died, and I'm responsible for his estate, and it still has not settled 18 months later. And if he had had a trust, it would have been all done.
1: Yeah. You talk about it in your book, whenever a decision has to be made or a test or something, you should always have uh, the patient's goal in mind. So if they're 90 years old, um, I think I would have a goal for them is to just, you know, Stay alive as healthy as you can, and if if you start you know going downhill, then then that's it. Let's let's bring in hospice. And so if if they want to do a test, for example, to see if uh, you have cancer, and maybe you're 95, what would you do to that 95 year old patient? You know, go through the the intrusive tests of seeing you know if they have cancer, and then perhaps treatment. Uh, radiation, chemotherapy, what what would you do for someone who that's not their goal?
3: Right. Well, the first thing is I can't oh. set their goal. So it's important to, um, to get the goal from the person, him right. or herself, rather than assuming that you know. And very frequently it's important that you let the family in on that conversation because often family feels like the more we do, the longer we'll have you. And the reality is, the older you get and the more frail you are, the more we do to you, the more suffering you're going to have, and it very often shortens your life. Um, We can do many amazing, miraculous things in healthcare. We can do triple organ transplants. I mean, it's amazing what we can do. But generally, for people who are older and more frail, the more we do, the more harm we cause. Mm -hmm. So... An important question to ask a healthcare provider who's recommending a test is, how likely is it that I'm going to benefit from your plan? You know, <laughs> if we do the test and we get the results, what then? What are we going to do with the results? We're not just doing tests to get results. We do tests to set a plan of treatment. So if I'm yeah. not going to benefit from that plan, I don't want the test, you know, and they get They're they're
2: making money from all the tests that they rack up.
1: Should we be concerned that they want to do all these procedures just to make money off of us? Yeah. Or is that a myth?
3: <laughs> well, Not I think it's. I mean, I I like. <laughs> so you to know think how I'm
1: Adrian happy. feels now. Tell us how. You
3: feel. <laughs> <laughs> I I I like to think everyone is operating from wanting to do the right thing. But if your mortgage payment is contingent on. How many people you treat? Then it's hard to separate that, right? Exactly. And you can justify things. I think even if you're not consciously do it, doing it. I, I if I ran the world, I would have every physician in our country on a salary, on a very nice salary, but not on a you know uh, pay to play kind of salary, because I think it's very hard ethically. To tease that out, and we're expecting too much of people. And so we have surgeries being done on people literally in the last week that they're alive. And it's not mm-hmm. the surgery that kills them, it's whatever the, you know, it's the fact they were 90 when we did the surgery, right. you know. Yeah.
1: And the but, same thing with uh, uh, medication and prescriptions. Uh, do you find that they're just offering way too many new prescriptions? Uh, here's a free sample, and then, you know, uh, go to the doctor and get your prescription that is uh, a problem as well
3: it is and also for people as we age you know right. you you're doing fine and then you get diagnosed with high blood pressure and that's fine you go along and then maybe you get emphysema and you go you know you're stacking up different healthcare problems and gaining new medications and no one's stopping to see Are these things interacting with each other and causing another symptom? Now you come in and you're dizzy. So now you're getting medication because you're dizzy, when really if we had removed one or two of the other medications, maybe you wouldn't be dizzy. And so pharmacists who specialize in caring for people who are older have said that if a new symptom comes up and you're over 70 and you're taking more than two medications... It should first be viewed as a medication reaction and viewed from that standpoint rather than the standpoint of this is a physical, you know, inherent problem that you've developed.
1: Yeah, and is it dangerous to just, if you get to that point, you're on five or six medications, sometimes the patients say, I'm just going to stop them all and see what happens.
3: Yeah, that's not a good idea. But one thing I have said, (laughs) I've said to people, you know, I had a, a... Actually, who's a nurse, and her father was very upset with all these medic. He was taking eight different medications. And every time they went to the doctor, her father would say, I don't like taking all these medications. And he left the same or with another prescription. And I said to her, Ask your dad how many medications a day is okay. What's his goal? He's the bus driver. What does he want to do? And he said that he would take four. So they went to the physician. <laughs> And gave him the list Said, pick the four that I'm going to take because I'm not taking more than four. And they kind of negotiated back and forth. And he stopped being dizzy, actually. That's a good example of someone who all these medications were causing some kind of a reaction. And if you go to see more than one specialist, are they looking back and seeing what the other medications are? Or are they just viewing their own tunnel vision? So yeah. it's the more complicated our system gets, the more you have to be on top of things. Unfortunately, I mean,
2: well.
3: I I must take.
2: I'm not proud of it, but I must <laughs> take about <laughs> about fifteen medications.
1: Adrian, that's and way too many, don't you think?
2: No, I don't think. <laughs> um, I I have I have no thyroid and. Okay. It's it's caused a lot of imbalances in my system for the for the past forty years, and um, it, in order to keep me functioning properly, and you know, not it's not just a matter of taking something that does what your thyroid hormones do, mm-hmm. uh, but I do have someone that I see on a, uh, at this point uh, four times a year who I've seen him for thirty five years, who manages all my medications
3: mm. to
2: make and if I start even a vitamin, if I t- if I take a vitamin or a supplement, I will ask him if this is okay with the medications that I'm taking. Because even vitamins are, are oh, sure. critical. Mm-hmm. Sure. One thing I
3: will say is that people have to know that even if you've been taking a medication for ten years, as our bodies change, our reaction to it can change. and so it doesn't it may need to be adjusted or or stopped um, as you age and your body changes. Yes yeah. yeah.
1: hmm. Listen, let's take another break, and we'll be right back, so don't go away. Dave Nassani, The Caregiver's Caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled, It's My Life Too, Reclaim Your Caregiver Sanity by Learning When to Say Yes and When to Say No. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. And he now speaks all across the country offering caregivers his incredible caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Reclaim your caregiver sanity by learning when to say yes and when to say no will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver. On sale everywhere and at caregiverscaregiver.com. And we're back on The Caregiver Dave Show. I'm Dave Nassani with Adrian Gruberg and we're talking to Margaret Fitzpatrick. I wanted to switch gears and get into like um, hospice I did not know at the time when my mother-in-law was uh, going into her dementia, etc., and it's got worse and worse, that there is something called palliative care that is kind of a bridge between, so you don't necessarily have to be dying to be on palliative care. A lot of people don't know that because, uh, well, go ahead and explain it.
3: Yes, thank you for bringing this up. I almost wish we would take the word hospice out of our vocabulary because it has such baggage. People hear it and they hear you saying, get ready to die. Right. Even though, you know, it's been shown actually that a lot of people live longer under hospice care than they would without it. But palliative care is a specialty in medicine that is directed towards the care and comfort of a patient. It, it, its goal is to mitigate the unpleasant effects of a serious illness or the medications that the person is taking. Palliative care practitioners are experts at dealing with uh, pain, nausea, dizziness, any weight loss, things that accompany severe illness.
1: They're so, the doctor uh, feel-goods.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or feel better. Anyway, if it's not good, it's better. But, and hospice is a form of palliative care. So all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. It's hospice. Yeah. Anytime someone has a serious illness, whether it's congestive heart failure or dementia or emphysema uh, it can be severe diabetes or kidney disease. They are good can and they have bad side effects from this illness. It's an, impacting their life in a negative way. They are good candidates for palliative care. You can have chemotherapy and be getting palliative care. You can be pursuing mm-hmm. aggressive uh, therapeutic treatments that you hope will cure your illness and have palliative care. That is, there's no limit, Um, you can have it for as long as you need it. Um, And a study was done for patients with lung cancer that showed those with palliative care who received that alongside their aggressive treatment for lung cancer lived longer than those who only received the aggressive treatment. So it's an important vital specialty in medicine for people who have serious illness.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, back in the olden days uh, when people (laughs) used to get senile, um, they have so many different names for that now. Um, (laughs) Right. We call it the delirium, uh, recognizing it, you know, the alcoholism can can actually uh, give a person Alzheimer's or dementia and Parkinson's. And explain that whole big box that's wrapped up like that.
3: So dementia is is not a normal part of aging. Too often people think of it as just getting older. Dementia is a, a pathology that often accompanies aging, but it is not a normal part of aging. And there's many different kinds of dementia. The most common by far is Alzheimer's. And it can be early onset. People in their 50s can get it. uh, Or it can be quite late in someone's life. Generally, when someone is diagnosed, there is around a five-year survival rate. It is a terminal illness. It is not just a forgetfulness. It's not just something that affects the brain. It actually is a terminal um, diagnosis that at this point has no cure. Um, The delirium, and it can also, if you have a history of alcoholism, if you have a history of traumatic brain injury, um, those are things that, make our risk factors for developing dementia as you grow older. Um, But the delirium that you mentioned is an acute mental status change. Um, And that is different from dementia. Delirium can come on usually suddenly. Very often when someone's in the hospital, we describe it as sundowning, which is kind of a benign sounding thing. But delirium is a very serious medical issue that often goes undiagnosed because we think it's, you know, you come into the hospital room, grandma's there, and she's crying, and she's pulling on things, and she doesn't know where she is, even though she was living on her own before that. That is only one very rare part of delirium. Most delirium in the hospital for older patients is a quiet delirium where they withdraw. They're more quiet than usual because they're confused. And so it goes undiagnosed and it can last long after they go home. So that's one of the things that I say why being in the hospital can be so dangerous, especially for someone who has the beginning parts of dementia because Mm -hmm. people who have mild dementia can take care of themselves. They can make their own decisions. They may need different supports in place, but they're very frequently living on their own or with their spouse, doing fine. And then you put them in the hospital, they go through a period of delirium, and we have robbed them now of their cognitive functioning that they could have had for many months or years, but we've kind of interrupted that by putting them in the confusion of the hospital.
1: Yeah, so when we say, well, they, she has good days and bad days, that could be delirium.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Absolutely, it could be. When when um, it was three weeks before my husband passed away, he had, he had lung cancer. Um, all of a sudden, he was suffering from delirium. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started at home, and he was seeing spaceships and getting dressed to run out of the house and, you know, and not, not taking me with him. I was furious. <laughs> but um, it was like, just save yourself. And, <laughs> you know, it, he heard he heard people in the front of the house in the morning and I had to go around the house opening and closing doors to make him feel safe. And then when we went to the hospital, uh a week and a half before he passed away, um, every single night he was experiencing delirium. And it was scary stuff to be around. Um, oh, yeah. It's such, And it was only three weeks, but it was such a drastic change. It was very frightening for the caregiver. And um, oh, sure. I, th- I think that caregivers need need to be aware of what might might be happening and, and give them a vague notion of how to deal with it. Because, I mean, I, I know that I was told that they were going to be putting my husband in a, um, a mental care facility. And it was like, I've been preparing myself for six years him to die from the lung cancer Not to go Visiting him every day In the mental facility It was very scary Oh yeah so, And well, I know What I was talking about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah
1: You know I, I uh, Our show is to caregivers And I know there's a, a place in your book that You talk about help for caregivers And I think they need the help more than the loved one, actually. Yes. Because according to AARP, 30% of caregivers actually die before their loved ones do. And the vast majority of the rest of them, you know, the lucky ones, (laughs) well, they just become (laughs) sicker than the ones they're caring for, eventually needing a caregiver of their own. So it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. What hope do you have for caregivers?
3: Well, I think... um you know so well and i know that you talk about helping yourself before you help the other person because you're the one who is the engine and so if the engine isn't working nothing's going to work so it's so important to to take care of yourself and to take advantage of respite care early on in the process i recommend to people whose spouse has gotten a bad diagnosis, and you know that things are not going to be getting better, that they're probably going to be getting worse, to try and access whatever resources there are out there, because too often people do it when they need it, and you need to get on a waiting list, you know. So you need to get on those (laughs) waiting lists and explore those options when things are fairly stable not when you're in a panic and, you know, feeling like you're going to tear your hair out. So that's very important. For someone who's caring for a parent, I really encourage people to not fall into the trap of saying that you have a role reversal, that Mm. you're now the parent and the parent is the child. Because I think that that really sets you up for a, a bad dynamic and a battle of wills. The battle of wills, that's, uh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. I know it's easier said than done, but we have to still honor the role that the person plays in the structure of the world, in our society, and that is as the elder. And the elder needs to feel that respect, even if that person doesn't know who you are anymore, Mm -hmm. often... When they lash out and you feel like it came from nowhere, it comes from fear and an insecurity because they've lost their place in, in the structure of society and all their choices have been taken away. So we have to figure out a way where we can honor who they are mm. and still take care of them. It's a, it's a delicate balance for sure.
1: So, how do you know when a caregiver is burned out? Is there like a self test, a litmus test? <laughs> because many of them are in denial about it. Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. They continue right. to pile stuff <laughs> on their plate. You know,
3: right? And I think I think one key is if someone says I'm doing fine, <laughs> it it deserves a second look because if your life is you know you're taking care of an aging parent, your husband was diagnosed with cancer. You have children at home and three dogs, and you're saying you're doing fine, something's probably not being paid attention to. But you know, there's those classic signs of not sleeping even when you have the time or the space to be sleeping, the um, getting angry, losing your temper uh, when you're not generally like that. That's a warning sign losing weight, gaining weight, all those things where you're not acting as you would describe yourself. Those are warning signs that something is off and you need to figure that out. And one thing that I think is great about our time in in the world with technology is people can access counseling at home. Mm-hmm. You know, there are these different services now where you can have a therapist you know a social worker a a trained counselor that you can email or you can speak to on the phone or you can do a video chat with once a week and so you don't feel so isolated and you're not having to take the time to drive across town to see a therapist and it often is less expensive so I really encourage people to look into those kind of resources too
1: yeah that's for sure um what about caregivers who, um, how do I put this? I literally lost my train of
3: thought. I thought you were going to go for the martyr syndrome. I thought maybe you were going to talk about that.
1: Well, there are so many things to talk about. We don't need to talk about that.
3: <laughs> Whatever so it was. What,
1: what is the best, if a caregiver, right? you know, they can listen to this interview. They can read your book. And chances are they'll only, if they're lucky, go away with one thing, you know, that call to action, that thing that says, you know, if you don't listen to anything else I say, listen to this. And as we close, who's we're running out of time, what is that last thing that if you don't do anything else, just do this, at least get started on that journey to, to self-care.
3: Well, one thing I have to say is that conversation. If you're a caregiver, you need to have that conversation with someone who's going to be caring for you if you get into a car accident or whatever. So have that conversation. But the most important thing I would give as a question that they can take with them as they're dealing with healthcare professionals is what is the goal? To always be asking, to keep your goal in mind, to keep your loved one's goal in mind, and to be asking the physician for every test, treatment, medication, procedure, what is the goal, what are we seeking to accomplish here, and keeping that in mind.
1: And I did remember what I forgot. It's about (laughs) caregivers have to see the doctor also, (laughs) and they have their own doctor appointments. And many of the Mm -hmm. times, uh, because they're in control, They neglect those doctor appointments, and they neglect, you know, their medication, their high blood pressure medication or their uh, cholesterol medication or their thyroid medication (laughs) or whatever. Um, What what advice would you give a caregiver to have a discussion with their doctor? Because now the smart doctors already know, well, I, I know you're a caregiver, so they will already open the book on, you know, uh, not necessarily what the patient is telling them, but they're they're talking to the patient because they know what caregivers go through. But for those doctors who don't, let's say they're clueless or they're just waiting to retire, what should a caregiver? What kind of questions should a caregiver ask their doctor? Because many caregivers suffer the same symptoms. You know, they don't sleep right, they don't eat right, uh, they they're, they're constantly bombarded with guilt, et cetera, and they're a mess.
3: Well, I'll go back to what we talked about before, which is that thing of of having a counselor, or if it's easier to think of it as a coach, to have a coach in your life. Because honestly, very frequently, physicians are not equipped to answer those questions. And it's more, your blood pressure is this, here is the beta blocker to take for that. But this global thing of how am I going to manage this you know, blob of responsibility that I'm carrying. I think you really need a coach for that when it gets overwhelming. And go online and look for one and access those resources because that's going to help you more than a physician often.
1: What a coincidence that I also happen to be a caregiver coach. So, yes, go to caregiverdave.com and we can (laughs) sign you up. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, uh, Margaret. How can people get a hold of you if they want to buy your book or talk to you more or pick your brain?
3: Sure. They are welcome. They, you can go on Amazon and get the book, Getting the Best Care. And you can email me at margaret, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T, at gettingthebestcare.com. That's my website is gettingthebestcare.com. I have a podcast Uh Getting the Best Care, the Insiders Healthcare podcast. So I'm happy to hear from everybody and anybody.
1: <laughs> and we appreciate you coming on the show so much. Thank you for uh, showing up every week, Adrian. She, she's at Yo, you're uh, welcome. thecaregiverspace.org. She's taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I am on uh, com. And one day, Adrian's taking notes because one day she's going to have her own podcast. And so she's just she's just preparing for it. So we're all looking forward to that day. Uh, Actually, I won't because I'll be losing her probably, unless she's going to (laughs) do both of them. I don't know. But thank you again for everybody coming on the show, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program with Dave Nassani.